Now, where did I put it? Hmm. Ah, here it is. Welcome to the Toolbox, where we discuss the tools we utilize every day. Yours to use or toss, it's up to you. But I hope you enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to Tools for the Toolbox. I have another outstanding episode and I can't wait to bring it to you. So we're going to dive headfirst right into it and uh, with the same question I always use. Who are you and what is your military background? Hey, Chance, I'm Dave Grossman. I, uh, I enlisted in the 82nd Airborne Division in 1974 and made it to E5 in, uh, in 22 months, which is a reflection on how bad things were during that time. And was uh, was close to E6 when I uh, I went to OCS after four years. Uh, came up through the ranks. Uh, did a couple of years of night school in my own time. Nice. And uh, and then I, uh, I Army Infantry Officer Ranger. You know that the top mm-hmm. slice of an OCS class got to pick what they wanted. Mm-hmm. I saw the same thing when I was at West Point, and pretty much infantry, you know, MI and uh, and aviation got used up right away. Yeah. And uh, and got to go infantry and went to um, ranger school, had a lot of fun, you know. And, and one of the tools for the toolbox that I'd like to share with you further on is a, is a little ranger school story that it's it's really a, an important little tool to Absolutely. carry with you. Yep. And, uh, and then uh, as a, it was like the uh, late 70s, early, uh, early 80s, I was at uh, Fort uh, Lewis. Washington at the 9th Infantry Division and doing some great light infantry stuff, a platoon leader and XO and a weapons platoon leader and a mortar officer. And then uh, I ended up being uh, battalion S- S2. I, uh, by enlisted time, I was a unit clerk and then uh, I was I was a line dog, but they pulled me out of the line to be a unit clerk and then yep. to be a uh, uh, battalion ops NCO. So they uh, they said, Grossman, we're taking you out of your happy little home. You're going to be an S1 at uh, at the sister, you know, our sister battalion, oh, Roger out, you know. Yep. And, and it was good. All, all those enlisted skills, they came in handy. And then I turned around and uh, went back to infantry officer advanced school in uh, uh, Fort Ord, California, company command, uh, uh, division staff, uh, had a lot of fun. And uh, then I uh, was selected to teach at West Point, which is really my goal. I, the Army gave me two years to finish my bachelor's degree as a young captain. Okay. And I thought, man, this is cool. All, all I've did since I was 18 get up and beat my head against the big green wall, you know. I didn't know there was another world out there. Yep. I didn't know there was a world where people got up at, at 10 o'clock in the morning and went to two classes a day. You know, What's this, this sleeping in thing? Yeah. More of this. So my goal was to get to uh, grad school on the Army's time, and I got accepted to teach at West Point. And I went to get my grad degree en route to West Point and wrote my first book uh, mm-hmm. while I was there uh, on killing. Great book. I Love turned it. in one chapter for my graduate thesis and mm-hmm. – uh, and then the, the book took off while I was at West Point, and uh, and then I ended up going to the British Staff College and ran the, the the Clinton was president, the Cold War was over. I ran the the ROTC unit at Arkansas State University, had a lot of fun, stayed as long as I could, and then retired. Pop smoke, blew the claymores, you know, wave goodbye, clack clack, and uh, and uh, and I, I was out of there. And uh, ever since then, and that's been. 24 years now. I spent 24 years in the Army and 24 years since I've been out. I'm 65 now. Wow. And I've uh, I've been on the road over 200 days a year. I train cops in all 50 yep. states. I think I'm the only law enforcement trainer post-certified in all 50 states. Mm-hmm. I uh, 
I uh, train every federal agency and, and lots and lots of other people as well, all of our tier one spec ops, all our military. It's been a good ride. Been a good ride. That's outstanding. I mean, to have a career that long is first off in the infantry is <laughs> that's a whole well, other ball of wax, right? There, yeah, yeah. I see so many dudes get go in being studs and they get hurt or they get uh, yeah, you know, damaged or in some way, and oh, that career is gone. You think you're going to be in twenty some odd years, right? Well. But People so happen. much better than me that it makes the ranger schools because they got injured. You yeah. know, it's just the, the roll of the dice. You yeah, know, it's yeah. like a D and D game at random encounters, you know, and, yeah. and something happens to you and you, you fail your saving roll and boom, you're out of ranger yeah, school. Exactly. You, know, you fell off yeah. the repelling tower. Oh no. Yeah. yeah. Let me let me give you a, a kind of a tool for the toolbox mm -hmm. out of Ranger School. You might Absolutely. Get a we were in the first phase of Ranger School. We didn't have the desert phase at that time, so it was mm -hmm. an extended Fort Benning phase. And we'd been out for weeks. We'd had, uh, you know, no food, no sleep for days. And that's one of the things I want to put in the toolbox of your listeners here is this sleep management. It's so important. It's just a baseline of everything else. Mm -hmm. So we're sleep deprived, food deprived, and we're, we're, we're everybody's back in, turning in equipment. And we got this big, tall Marine lieutenant, and he goes to the outhouse, just old style, you know, crapper outhouse, you know, with a with a bench, and and there's just a pile of crap down there, and. Uh, and, and the map from his cargo pocket in his uh, in his uniform, his field uniform, drops down into the ship. <laughs> and he comes back and he says, I, I need somebody to hold my legs so I can go down to the outhouse and get the map. <laughs> and, and everybody else, everybody is like, they're just droned out. Yeah. And I said, you bunch of dirt bags. I just I was disgusted with you. He's not asking to go in the ship with him. He's just asking to hold his legs. Yep. Anybody else? My, my ranger buddy, Jim Boyle, and I went to OCS together and said, come on, Jim, well, let's, let's dip this marine in the outhouse. There's a hatch in the back of this outhouse, and we're holding this guy, the big, tall, dangly guy, and he's kind of gacking and puking, and he reaches down, he gets his map, and we haul him out. We all we all line up, right? We turn in our gear, and he, everybody sloshes their canteen over it. We try and try to clean it off. So he goes to turn this map in. He turns this map in, and the ranger instructor like, what is this? <laughs> Throws it away and then drives on, right? He had his map. He turned it in. Roger out, ranger. Yep. You met the stranger. So well, we did our peer evals, and uh, and that's where everybody in platoon assesses everybody else. So yep. you can get peered out. You know, if everybody says, this guy's a dirtbag, boom, he's gone. Yep. And so I thought, man, I'm getting peered out. You know, I just, I just, I just told these guys what a bunch of dirtbags who were, and and I don't care. I'm done with this, and I'm, mm -hmm. I don't care. So we went into the um, our tack, our ranger captain, uh, uh, he's part of the cadre, and he said, Ranger Grossman, got some bad news for you. I thought, oh, that's it. I'm getting peered out. He said, I'm going to separate you and Ranger Boyle, Jim Boyle, the guy that helped me dip the marine in the yep, and uh, the next phase. Well, I'm just glad I'm in the next phase. You know, I said, oh, oh okay, sir. I'm not. Why are you doing that? Yeah, everybody in the platoon peered you and Boyle, number one and number two. And leadership that strong, I got to break you up. <laughs> and, and I really missed the opportunity of a lifetime. Yep. If I had just told him, oh, oh no, sir, here's why that happened. <laughs> and I'd have about different <laughs> it would have been legendary. I mean, it was like the ultimate missed opportunity. But I just said, oh, no, sir, we're just a couple more drones. We just, yep. we just had me in their head. But... The point of all that is, when things are really going bad, people look up to the guy that's got the energy. Yep. It's got the grit and the determination. They, they, they honor that. 
And, and the story I tell, I interviewed a cop. Uh, he was a game and fish officer in Arkansas. And a father and son, white supremacist in, uh, in, uh, in uh, uh, West Memphis, Arkansas, had murdered two cops. Mm-hmm. And there's like this dragnet for everybody. And this guy comes from 100 miles away at 120 miles an hour to, to be part of this dragnet. He's a game and fish officer. Mm-hmm. And he pulls into Walmart. And they, these two idiots, his father and son team, they've got uh, – They've got the sheriff who is unarmed and, and who is a destroyed human being and didn't even run for office. He was caught without a weapon. I mean, and, and a deputy pinned down in the parking lot of Walmart behind their Crown Vic. And these two idiots are leaning out the windows of their van, shooting at the sheriff and his deputy. So this guy, the game and fish officer, his name is Mike Neal. Uh, <laughs> Mike calls 911 and said, hey, you know, you... And they didn't believe him. They, who are you? You know, what's going to do? You got two guys crowned down behind, behind the crown big, and there's yep. the, the, the people you're looking for here. And the, these idiots just went chopping at Walmart. Life went on. They killed these two cops. And, one cop. and so, uh, so this guy, this guy's truck is in the 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 National Law Enforcement Museum, but he floors the truck, and there, there's a Walmart security video of his his vehicle hitting hitting their van, mm-hmm. and he slams into the van about forty miles an hour. And he's got his AR, he's got his rifle, two two three, uh, right there on the seat beside him. And he picks up the AR and just firing through the car, kills them both. I mean, just drills them, riddles mm-hmm. them bullets, both. game over. Yep. And um, and he said he said something really important. He said, you know, I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. He said, you know, they don't make fun of me no more. Now he's the sheriff. <laughs> he's been elected sheriff. Chop all bad guys in the flu vaccine. Yep. And uh and and, and, and and that raised my head. I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. Mm-hmm. He said, they don't make fun of me no more. Now, when things you're... are crazy bad out there, Chance. Things are crazy bad. And, and, and here's another tool for the toolbox, right? Yep. Just understand that when things go bad, they look up to the person who's who's striving, the person who's going the extra rounds. They've got, got that energy. Yep. And, uh, and things are crazy bad right now. The number one untold story in the world today is the fact that the murder rate is being held down by medical technology. Yeah. But when they talk about the per capita murder rate, they're lying because the docs are saving ever more lives. Yeah. So I, I was called to the White House as part of the president's roundtable on violent video games, and then I was called again to brief uh, Vice President Pence. And, uh, and, and he had a really intelligent question. I said, you know, the murder rate is being held down by medical technology, just like we have... We have inflation-adjusted dollars. We need medically-adjusted murders. And he had a really good question. He said, well, what about the aggravated assault rate? Mm-hmm. I said, sir, it's too easy to fudge that data. Yeah. Where do you draw that magic line between ag assault and simple assault? Every cop will tell you, we'd make ag assault say, what did you want it to say? But dead is dead. I mean, murder is good data, but you've got to allow for medical technology. Yeah. So here we've got one good solid data point. Uh, a major study. The UMass Harvard study came out in a major peer-reviewed journal. Between the 1960s and the 1990s, medical technology had cut the murder rate to a third or a quarter would otherwise be. So yeah. just like comparing minimum wage, you got to multiply minimum wage in the 60s by four to compare it with today, right? Yep. Well, comparing the murder rate, the murders in the 90s, you got to multiply by four to compare with the 60s. And the leaps and bounds of life-saving technology since the 90s is astounding. Yeah. Tourniquets alone have, have, have cut the murder rate by, by an enormous amount. 
the number one preventable loss of life on the battlefield was bleeding out from extremities. Mm-hmm. We gave everybody a tourniquet, taught them how to use it. Boom, we completely defeated the number one. So a decade ago, nobody carried a tourniquet. Today, every cop, every EMS, every mm-hmm. everybody carried. I carry tourniquets every Yeah, I was going to say, I have some in my truck, too. Yeah, it. Uh... I got one in my, in my fanny pack. I got one in the glove box. I got one. In, I, I like the SWAT T. I like a, the SWAT T. It's a third the price. And, but anyway, the... Uh, so just think about this. If we're, we're, America is a nation of a third of a billion people. Mm-hmm. If just 20 to 30 people a day slap on a tourniquet and save a crime victim's life, we cut the murder rate in half. Yep. So I trained extensively for one of our nation's biggest fire EMS services. They said, Dave, we guarantee you 20 to 30 times a day in our city alone, we slap on a tourniquet and save a crime victim's life. So step one, and you get it in one sentence, the murder rate is being held down by medical technology. Anybody who tries to tell you the problem based on the number of dead people is 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 concealing the data. It's much yeah. worse than a Boom, you get it in one sentence. But the entire field of criminology, the entire field of criminal science is lying to us. They know this, but they don't want to talk about it. And and that's another whole topic. But, but here's the key then. In 2020, the homicide rate per capita went up 37%. Now, the biggest we've ever seen is 12.5% one year of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. But that's not three times worse than we've ever seen. When we allow for medical technology, 2020 was 20 times, at least 20 times worse than anything we've ever seen. Yeah. And in 2021 is even worse. In 2021 is com- compound interest yeah. stacked on top. 20 times worse than anything we have ever seen. The wheels are coming off the bus. And the thing is, we've been building up to this. Canada and other nations have been building up to it. But what happened in America was strictly uh, American. Mm -hmm. Uh, It was the George Floyd effect. It was this breakdown of society, this narrative that the cops are the bad guys and the crooks are the good guys. So bring that back to ranger school. Bring back to my cop that says, I'm the kind of cop other cops make fun of. They don't make fun of me, so no more. Guys, the wheels are coming off the bus. Our world is coming unglued. Things are crazy bad. And and the time has come to rise to the challenge. Absolutely. The time has come for, for us to get, dip in that toolbox, have the resources, and prepare ourselves for, for that moment of truth when it comes. And, uh, you know, that's kind of the first tool for the toolbox is, number oh. one, understand how desperately bad it is. Yep. And number two, understand that when things get bad, they turn to you. They're looking for you. So... Something I try to do in every podcast, I honor you for putting together this podcast, and I honor your listeners for listening. When I was a kid, we had three TV networks, and we had one regional newspaper. Yep. And then, you know, maybe Time and Newsweek and Post. And so there was less than 10 national media outlets total. And if you didn't get in one of those outlets, you, your, your voice never got heard. Yep. Today, we have we have hundreds of thousands of podcasts and we've got we, it's like we broke the log jam and, and instead of getting a 10 minute i've been on 60 minutes in 2020 and it's a waste of time you get a five minute sound blip they do what they want to they run off with it yep. but but the podcast revolution is made for people who are seeking deeper knowledge and and, and i honor you taking the time and the effort, you're not getting a whole heap and pile of money for doing this podcast. Nope. <laughs> and I honor your listeners yeah. who are seeking out this information. And, and this is all part of the dynamic of rising to the challenge during this time. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. You know, one of the things that I've been saying for many years now is that 
we're in the middle of what I call a veteran renaissance. Yes. And it yes. is, it yes. is, uh, we have veterans starting okay. businesses, creating channels, doing podcasts, doing, uh, shooting demonstrations, people coming up with forges and like, you name making shirts and all kinds of crazy people oh. just getting into coffee. Like it, it's one of those things that we have a whole bunch of people that have spent time in, in a place that their life is not guaranteed. And now they come back to a place that their life is pretty much guaranteed. Like in Canada, it's, it's a pretty safe environment. Yeah. And uh, sure. and you can just like do whatever you want. Cool, yeah. like, you wanna start a forge? Start one, see what happens, right? Yes, and, and here's the key. I call it the warrior renaissance. Mm -hmm. I've been using this phrase for 20 years. It's an explosion of knowledge. Yeah. We have learned more about the psychology and physiology of combat in the last 50 years and the previous 5,000 years put together. Mm -hmm. You know, my book, uh, my book on combat, issued in the DEA Academy, issued in the Marshall Academy, last I heard, uh, Marine Corps Commandant's required reading ever since it came out in 2004. But what, just one little thing in the book, auditory exclusion. The shots kept muted in combat. Yep. How in the hell could we have had 500 stinking years of gunpowder combat and not get around to let people, hey, you know, the shots are probably getting muted in combat. Boom. Why, why didn't we know this stuff? So we, we have this warrior renaissance, but we also have the new greatest generation coming yep, home. Absolutely. And, and I think that's the primary message coming out of Afghanistan is that uh, this greatest generation is coming home. This, I love your phrase about veterans renaissance, mm -hmm. a new greatest generation, a new golden age. And things are bad all over, but there's some good things to turn to. And these guys that have been forged in the fire. And when I talk about this war, and this goes on to it, I, I think we need to wrap our mind around with Afghanistan. When I talk about this war, I tell people, nobody's been drafted in this war. Four years into the war, there was nobody left who enlisted before the war and got stuck with the war. Yep. For, well, for a decade and a half, every person in this fight has raised their right hand to enlist or re-enlist in time of war. The last time we fought a war with 100% wartime volunteers was American Revolution. Yep. Starting 1812, we, we always had people enlist before the war, got stuck with the war. Long was was had the draft. You know, it, 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 we have never fought a war, let alone a 20-year-long war with all volunteers. Yep. And the people who have, who have volunteered for this war are magnificent. And there's a lot of bad things happening in this world right now. But you want to put together the best of the best. You gather together our veterans. And the same thing is true with our cops yep. during these dark times. And I would add fire and EMS. And I would, all of these people, you know, you didn't join the army to get rich. You, you don't become a cop to get stinking filthy rich, at least not legally. You know, when, when you became what I call a sheepdog, mm -hmm. when you became a sheepdog, you accepted a life of sacrifice. You're never going to be filthy, stinking rich. You're never going to be a famous celebrity. You've accepted a life of sacrifice, and you must believe you're sacrificed for a noble and worthy purpose. So I'll give you an angle on all this. You know, I, I'm 64 years, 65 years old now, um, and it's my prayer I can do this for another 20 years. And uh, waiting at home for me is my bride of 46 years, my high school sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Uh, she was uh, she was fifteen. I was seventeen when I proposed to her. And we we are from Arkansas. <laughs> you know, it... two years later, two years later, she married a crazy army paratrooper. 
they moved me on this ride for 46 years. I love them more than life itself. Yeah. And yet, for 24 years in the Army, and now 24 years doing this, I spent more time away from I ever spent with them. I get on one, maybe two nights a week, conjugal visit, clean underwear. Mm-hmm. Why? Because we love our children. Because we love our grandchildren. Because we love our nation. We love our God. We love our way of life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our nation is sick right now. The world is sick. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the pandemic. I'm talking about yeah. all the other things eating away at the fabric of our civilization. Do you abandon your child when they're sick? Do you abandon your family when they're at their worst? No. This love means that when it, they're at their worst, we give it our best. And and it's time to rise to the challenge and time to rise to the to the reality. And people don't even know how bad it is. My cops have a sense that it's bad. I tell them, and they say, that makes sense. We've had more we've had more deadly force incidents in the last two years than the previous 10 years put together. But things are coming unglued everywhere. We don't even know it. And, and the people who should be giving us their information are not doing it. And so we turn to alternative mechanisms. Mm-hmm. But this is the time for that veteran's renaissance, that warrior renaissance, the sheepdog renaissance. I call it the sheepdog. And, and, and that's what it's all about. It absolutely, and I love 100%. it. I, I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. I'll give you credit. Uh, no, absolutely. It's you know <clears throat> what I what I really loved uh, about seeing when I got back, especially Afghanistan. As Afghanistan has fallen, we have seen uh, security companies and private citizens and people just step up to the plate. Right? And they're just you know what shit needs to happen. The government's not doing it. I don't care. I'm going to go do it. And they'll. They send, you know, getting uh, foundation set up, putting money into places so people, uh, so the Afghans can come here and they can actually have a place to, to live and have money to do it. Having actual volunteers just go back to Afghanistan to get people out of there, right? Like instead of, you know, you're not seeing hopes and prayers on Facebook and we're not seeing the little uh, changing of your icon or whatever. It's actual work, right? People are putting the work in. historical example of that. Uh, prior to World War II, we had Americans join the British RAF mm-hmm. as pilots. And we had Americans in China. I don't know if you ever studied much on Chenault and the Flying Tigers in China. A little bit. And, and on their own, they really, with, with minimal government support, they went to China with P-40 Warhawks, and they started a squadron of fighter. And the one thing that China desperately needed in their battle against Japan was, was air support. Yep. And they provided the, they, the Flying Tigers and the Americans flying in the RAF. That, that, that the Flying Tigers in China, before the war even started, they were there. And it was more or less a civilian dynamic of veterans and other people rising to the challenge saying, we're going to be there. We're going to do this. Yep. And, 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 and this is what you're seeing a hundred times over. A, a, a thousand little Chenaults out there doing their thing to, to, to help in this desperate hour when our government falls short. The individuals are rising to the challenge, and that's a beautiful thing. It really is. And, you know, the, the, I think the key in all of that is the use of knowledge, <clears throat> right? Like, the, the knowledge is all there. And, I mean, I'm a big fan of Jocko Willink. I love uh, his idea of extreme ownership. But those things are not new, right? These are basic leadership values that have been around for thousands of years that we've just changed into a format that people can actually uh, understand now or like whenever you read it, whenever it clicked in your head and was like, ah, yes, of course, that makes perfect sense. Um, even the auditory exclusion that you were talking about earlier, I was in Afghanistan when I was reading your book. And I had seen the Bulletproof Mind presentation before we left. They showed it to us, uh, just kind of get us in the headspace. 
And then uh, I was reading actually the chapter on auditory inclusion, and I got into a firefight uh, <laughs> earlier that day. And uh, a, one of the dudes came up after me. He's like, dude, did you see that RPG go over your head? And I was like, what? <laughs> when did that happen? And, uh, you know, I got home or I got back to the base and I looked, I was reading the book still and I was like, oh, auditory. Oh, oh, that's probably why I didn't see that RPG, right? Like, but it was the knowledge. I didn't have that knowledge before. I would have sat there for a long time going, like, wow. what the hell? I don't know why. Why give an extreme example. Memory distortion. Mm -hmm. Just two weeks ago, I gave a class in Indiana to law enforcement. And a, a, a young cop comes up to me after the class. A young young black officer, just an incredibly competent, squared away cop. He said, I've been in three deadly force incidents in the last two years. He said, the last one, the guy came at me with a knife, like three feet away. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I'm going to get cut, but I'm going to keep fighting. I'm going to get cut. I'm going to keep fighting. And he drew and fired and killed this guy from like three feet away. And, and he kept looking at his hands because there's no blood in his hands. Mm -hmm. But he re this is this memory distortion. He remembered getting cut. He remembered he was cut. He was looking for the blood on his hands. He kept looking. So they put him in a car with another cop beside him, and they're driving to the hospital to do a checkup on him. You know, he's okay. But he said, dude, do you see any blood on my hands? He said, no, man, there's no blood on your hands. Dude, are you sure that? No, man, there's no blood on your hands. That's how powerful. He said, until I heard your class, I thought I was crazy. Yep. I thought there was something wrong with me. Now I understand that at least one out of four people on the battlefield have a memory distortion like this. Boom. And I'm okay. Yep. So, you know, psychologists call that normalizing. It's too trivial a term for something so powerful. But it's so much better to know this stuff ahead of time. Who knows how many days he spent thinking he was crazy and, and just working it over and over in his mind. And then he said, oh, it's normal. They saw one out of five had the same experience. Boom, no problem. Yep. And, and able to drive on. But while we talk about Afghanistan and our veterans, let me mention something else, too. It was early in the war. It was uh, it was a, like the first month after 9-11. Mm -hmm. I was training the first batch of spec ops headed off to Afghanistan and had a, a young uh, special forces sergeant, a young Green Beret, came up to me. And he said, Colonel, we're going to Afghanistan, and we're going to kick their ass. He said, while we're there, you tell the cops, you teach. Don't let them come kill my kids. Don't you let those bastards come hurt my kids while I'm over there. And I've been passing that message on to cops for 20 years. So they kept it over there. They shut down their camps. They shut down their nation. They kept them off your back with their blood and their lives for 20 years. Mm -hmm. And all they ask is one thing. Watch my six. Cover my back. So early on in the war, I'm training uh, Chicago PD. And a crusty old Chicago police sergeant comes up to me. He said, Colonel, you tell those kids we got their six. We got their back. We can't be everywhere. You tell them, hunt the bastards down over there. We'll do the best we can over here. Mm -hmm. And every day we don't have another 9-11 is a victory. Absolutely. Every day this doesn't happen is a victory. And, and I tell them that folks in Afghanistan, they bought us 20 years of victory. They kept them the hell off our back. Now, I tell my cops, now the burden's back on you. In America, in particular, we have the Posse Comitatus Act. We're the only nation on the planet that plays by that rule. The U.S. Armed Forces cannot get involved in American soil. With the exception of the National Guard, they ain't shown up no time soon. Mm -hmm. so, so 
we have given the mission completely to local law enforcement. And I was on the BBC a little while back, and they, they said, well, well, in England, we have military units ready to respond immediately. Well, why do your cops need rifles? I said, well, first off, our military can't do it. Second, half of our states are bigger than all of England. Yep. We're a vast nation. It's a people that get there in the first 30 seconds that's going to make a difference. Five minutes later, 15 minutes later, it's too late. All the king's horses, all the king's men never put those kids back together again. Absolutely. So we've given the mission to the local law enforcement and to the local citizens, if you're willing to accept it here in America. And uh, and and it's the only option. We were Israel before Israel. You know, <laughs> This idea of arming our citizens and empowering our citizens, it goes back to the American Revolution, the, the French-Indian War. You know? mm-hmm. It goes way back, and it's part of who we are and what we do. And, and we know the answer to this thing. It's the belly up to the bar, get the tools, get the skills, and be prepared. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it leads into basically what I want to talk about today, which is <clears throat> the illusion of safety. And, you know, the uh, the real challenge that I have, I had for many years until I actually really understood it. Um, and I know a lot of other vets that I've, I've sat at tables with dozens of people that have all sat there and gone, you know what really pisses me off is when someone's sitting there and they have absolutely no concept of the dangers that are in life. And I had this conversation with my mom, actually, because I'm a big proponent of concealed carry. My mom is like a hippie. She <laughs> believes that, you know, just let the, you know, we shouldn't be fighting anyway. And I'm like, eh. anyway, uh, we got into this conversation. I was like, any time, at any point, a, some random dude could just walk in your front door and do violence on you. And even yes. if you had the phone in your hand and dialed 911 and had cops responding immediately, you're looking yes. at best in a city, yes. maybe two minutes, if they're in the area. Yes. And a lot of shit can go down in two minutes. <laughs> and the reality is more like 15 minutes is the yeah. national average, 15 or more. Yeah. That's the average. Yeah, I was just like, so, best case scenario, if there was a unit yes. like in the yes. area. Yeah. Later, it's over. Yeah. yeah. You're done. But, you know, in, in, in this, this idea of accepting I am my family's secret service, any, any nation on the planet, if you're wealthy, if you're a politician, we have armed security. Mm-hmm. But the peasants and the peons will never have that privilege. I, 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 that's what we're fighting for. I want my grandchildren to grow up in a nation where if they're willing to do it, they can be their family's secret service. And that, and that's the only option is is to empower the individual citizens and, and that and we're doing that and we need to wrap our, our arms around that and embrace that, uh, train ourselves, prepare ourselves. And you mentioned concealed carry. I tell all my classes, I tell them, you know, I'm I'm a big fan of the open carry movement. Uh, Americans got to get used to seeing people with guns, and I really like the open carry movement. But for me, the open carry guy, <laughs> he's my decoy. Yeah. Bad guy couldn't shoot him. I'm going to shoot the bad guy, yep. and I appreciate him doing that. Yep. Personal advice, don't be the decoy. Yeah, you know? exactly. <laughs> Never give up that incredible tactical advantage of surprise. Don't be the decoy. Never. No. Never surrender that tactical advantage of surprise. But, uh, but people are rising to the challenge. And I had a guy come up to me, and one of my um, – I teach at the NRA every year. I do a lot of civilian stuff. He said, I know I'm the decoy, and I'm willing to accept that. I said, brother, well I done. Honor that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I honor that. How can you? How can you? How can you just that guy? I mean, I run it out. I honor that. I understand that. He said, I sincerely know that I'm going to be the decoy, and I'm willing to accept that. Whoa, good for him. Yeah, uh, not me. <laughs> yeah, I. You know, I was always that guy that always carried extra ammo. 
I would always carry extra water. I'd have just a little bit extra food. I'd have just that little bit extra. Yeah, it was heavier. Yeah, it sucked. But I just had that extra. I have a multi-tool on my hip right now, right? I got a knife in my pocket. I have a teachable sea bag in my truck. I just, I like to be ready just in case. And if it never happens, cool. Never happens. Better for me, right? That's a good life. But I, you know, I study martial arts. I study um, shooting. I still have uh, all kinds of stuff. Like I I try to be, uh, I want to be a dangerous opponent if the time comes, but I'm still like, I'm not an angry person. I don't walk around being mean to people. I'm just me. And I'm, and if if your mom, if your mom could just understand (laughs) the probability of violence, it's gone up when we when we allow for medical technology. Mm-hmm. Every single year, without fail, since the nineteen sixties, violent crime is up. And then in twenty twenty, it's a twenty fold increase, worse than anything we've ever seen before. And and twenty twenty one's even worse. Mm-hmm. If we wrap our mind around that, we can be paralyzed, and and or we can take action. And. And that's what we need to do. You know what? I tell all my class, I said, denial kills you twice. Yeah. Denial kills you once. You don't have the tools. You don't have the skills. And you die like any other sheep. Denial kills you twice because even if you survive, you live the rest of your life in hell when there's simple things you could and should have done. Mm-hmm. It saves you once. You have the tools. You have the skills in there. Triumphant. But even if you fail, you can live with yourself. Yeah, because he did everything he can do, and, and that's really our goal is, is to is to is to do everything we reasonably can do, and then our our conscience is clear. I, I'm a I'm a reserve cop. I got my clothes on. I got a gun on, but I would rather walk out that door naked and alone than be with my grandchildren without the tools to protect them. Exactly. Yeah. And, and people ask you, why do you carry the gun? You tell them because I would live the rest of my life in hell if my loved ones were dying. And I didn't have the tools protected. Yep. Tell, me, tell me you wouldn't live your life in hell if you stood there and watched your loved ones die and you were legally authorized to carry the tools protective and you didn't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, what they do is they create weird, convoluted scenarios. And I want to give you an example here. I'll give your audience some examples. It's an individual who's a, a, a man I'm proud to call a friend and an amazing person. His name is uh, Officer Greg Stevens. It was May of 2015. I draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival outside of Dallas, Texas. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg is 59 years old. He's a traffic cop. He's never fired his weapon in a life and death event before in his life. But uh, uh, he's he's on a on a, 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 a overtime off duty detail providing security at the south entrance to the draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, two would be mass murderers. From uh, from Arizona, two two art critics from Arizona showed up with AK-47s and body armor. Could have been the Pulse nightclub times two. Yep. Uh, they had body armor. They had rifles. The, this is the FBI said this is the first ISIS directed attack on American soil. Wow. These two idiots came up with a net and said, "We want to die for the cause. What should we do?" They said, "Go to the draw the Prophet Muhammad Art Festival in, in outside of Dallas, Texas, and, and kill them all." Roger that. And so they roll out of the vehicle, body armor, uh, 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 rifles, element of surprise, and a 59-year-old traffic cop killed them both. One of the greatest acts of valor in history. Outstanding. Now, here's the setup that day. Greg is standing by this blue dot. Mm-hmm. Now, he, he really made an important point. He said, uh, he said I, I didn't buy head my cell phone. 
I, I wasn't sitting in my car. I was doing my job. Yep. I had my head up. I was paying attention. If I'd have been sitting in my car, I'd be dead and a lot of other people would be dead. He said, if I had my head in my cell phone, I'd be dead. A lot of other people would be dead. Mm-hmm. I'm standing there doing my job. This black car pulls up without a state plate, screeches to a halt. Both doors pop open. Now, he, Greg says, he said, I didn't consciously register that this is out of state plates. I didn't consciously register that that's a weird place to stop and both doors are open. Uh, it, that at an unconscious level, the hair on the back of my head standing up. He said, the hair on my arm standing up. He said, when you feel that hair stand up on your arms, you pay attention. Mm-hmm. He says, your unconscious mind is telling you something. Boom, he's in position one. Got a good firm grip on his weapon. So the driver and the passenger roll out at the same time. The driver rolls out and shoots an unarmed security guard who did survive. That security guard told Greg, he said, my only purpose in life is to be your deacon. <laughs> and, the, and the unarmed security guard did distract that guy. The unarmed security guard is heading south at Mach 2 as fast as he can. He took one bullet in the leg and kept going. Mm-hmm. I tell my people, you cannot call unarmed people security. You'll be sued. You'll be successfully sued. Yeah. We'll put somebody in uniforms. says, kill me first. And don't give them the tools to do the job. But uh, but meanwhile, the passenger rolls out of his vehicle, and Greg Stevens said, I saw his right foot step out. I saw the barrel of the rifle come up and around. We drew and fired from 40 feet away. Greg says, I cannot honestly tell you who fired first. But I'll tell you who fired best. Yep. From 40 feet away, puts volley four in this guy, kind of going for a general low center mass, puts volley four in this guy and puts him down. Now, about this time, the driver figures out we got a problem here and starts advancing on Greg Stevens, advancing and firing, and right here is where the driver died. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg engages him and puts a volley of four in him. Again, low center mass, and Greg Stevens said that he had a sight picture for every shot. Not a perfect sight picture, but a good enough sight picture for every shot. And uh, and he puts four rounds to the driver and puts him down. Now, this is a pretty unique situation. Uh, they're clearly terrorists. He'd been briefed on the terrorist threat. The car could be a bomb that could go up any time. They have load-bearing vests and backpacks. It could be bombs. So as long as they're still moving, they're a legitimate threat. Yep. Greg, Greg re-engages the passenger who's grabbing at his throat. He thought maybe the guy's going for a detonator. Turns out he had a shoulder holster. Maybe he was going for that. Didn't matter. Greg puts a volley of four and him came over. Mm-hmm. Now, he's got a Glock 45. He's got, 19, he's got 14 rounds. He's fired 12 rounds. He's got two rounds left, and he knows it. So he's fired four, four, and four. Uh, he says the driver's still twitching. And the city's paying for the ammo. Two bullets in the driver. Drop the mag. Speed mag change. Check 360. Who, who would not want to shake that man's hand? Right. Who, who would not want to show, shake that man's hand? Oh. And obviously he received our nation's highest award for valor. Now, here, here's the point. Greg was not a SWAT dog. He's not a competitive shooter. Uh, he was a negotiator for quite a few years. And I think that's part of why he could stay calm and get that good sight picture, because a negotiator, hour after hour after hour, this is the guy he has got to be thinking cop. He's got to stay calm. But other than being, there's nothing to distinguish him from anybody else. All he ever wanted to do was work the streets. for, for And for, for 37 years, that's all he did. But his department had an open range one Saturday a month. And for 37 years... One Saturday a month, he was on the range. I, you go to the range on your own time. They're not even paying you. Where's the range for? Because I'm a Texas cop and I live on dirt. Yep. The ammo's free and the range is open. And you're stupid if you're not there. Absolutely. So it, it comes back to doing some things on your own time. 
And I tell everybody, I got a model who runs through my stuff. You know, I tell them, you, you got to have a job. You got to have a life outside this job. You got to have a hobby. But it's a pure and beautiful thing when your hobby reinforces your survival skills. Hunting. I, 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 I've got a book coming out in a year called On Hunting. Ooh. It is truly going to be the definitive book. And I believe hunting is the single best way to prepare for combat for many reasons. Auditory exclusion. The, the only place where you dip in that toolbox of combat skills is hunting. Mm-hmm. And most especially auditory exclusion. And by the way, all you hunters out there, you are getting hearing loss. The shutout is in the nerve. The ear is yep. still being handled. Rare hearing protection when you hunt will be a deaf old geese like me. That's a pain in the butt. But, but now, Greg, how much golfing could he done one Saturday month for 37 years? How much time could he spend with his family? Yep. Sometimes your greatest love is not to sacrifice your life, but to live a life of sacrifice. Absolutely. Spend your own time and your own resources preparing for that moment of truth. So I, I tell people, you know, uh, uh, martial arts, uh, the martial art, the firearm is jujitsu. I think it's incredibly, uh, if you, you know, we are the people of the gun. Mm-hmm. People come to us for gunfighting. Uh, we're the pioneers. We, we want unarmed combat. We go to the Orient. You know, we want sword combat. We'll go to the Orient. You want, you want pistol craft. You come to us. Yep. And we've resurrected the martial art of the firearm called hujitsu.com. It's amazing. I, I really recommend it to your listeners. But the, the, the dynamic is find a hobby that, re, at least for Lord's sake, let your hobby have cardio demand. <laughs> and so what we do is, is we've got a motto that says piss on golf. Yeah. You know, golfing is, is t-ball for adults. Yeah. The golf course is a willful and deliberate misuse of a perfectly good rifle range. Yeah. And, and we're not impressed. Hit a little golf ball, turn yards. Hit a golf ball from 200 yards. There we go. So I tell people, it's, it, 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 it's fun to tease our golfers, and I keep blindsiding them throughout the class. It comes out of nowhere, and we just blindside the golfers periodically. It's fun. But think about how you spend your time. Think about how you spend your, your money. Absolutely. And, and when you're in the blazing gunfight, fighting for the survival of your civilization, for the survival of your family, you're not going to say, damn, I wish I just spent more time in the golf course. Yeah, no. <laughs> My nine iron would be great right now. Yeah, not going to play. We're going back to the sheep, right? The yep. sheep say, well, what good are you and your little pistol going to do? There'll be two of them. They'll have body armor. They come out of nowhere. And then what are you and your little pistol going to do? And I tell people, I want you to notice how the sheep come up with weird, convoluted scenarios that prove that nothing they can do. And they're right. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yep. They believe there's nothing they can do, and so they do nothing. That makes them dead people waiting for somebody to come fulfill their prophecy. I see dead people all around me. But the sheepdog is just the opposite. Two of them, body armor, rifles, come out of nowhere. Maybe on a good day, I can do what Officer Greg Stevens did. Yep. Yep, I was going to say that I'd rather be. The sheepdog, even if you fail, you can live with yourself because you're trained and prepared. I was going to say that it's like I'd rather do something than just stand there. Right. If yeah. I, even if I get a draw and I get one shot off and I get killed, cool. Like I got the draw and one shot. I, if I can just get the draw, okay. But like, I did something. I'm not just standing there. And this, you know, I think what it comes down to is the realization of mortality, and that because at a very young age I got hit by a car, and I got like hit hard. Um, I was I think 15 at the time, and I got hit by a car doing like 50 kilometers an hour, not miles. <laughs> 50 miles would kill me, but, um, yeah, it threw me right up over. I smashed the head, the windshield with my head. Like I could have gone very bad after that happened. 
I couldn't give a shit about my, like, okay, I know that I'm going to die. I understand how it can happen without even the slightest provocation. It just can happen. And once you realize that and you start going, oh, well, how do I prevent that from happening? Oh, well, martial arts is great. Sure. Um, PT, for sure. Anytime you can get, like you said, cardio work. Uh, for me, I, I enjoy skill sets that will give me something. So I like to shoot. I like to hunt. I like to do martial arts. I don't like sitting in the gym lifting weights because I'm not really like, I'm, yeah, I'm getting stronger, but I'm not learning anything at the same time. Right. And jujitsu for me has been fantastic. I've just taken that up for the last couple of years. Um, but it is a, it is the concept behind it is that you have to realize, you know, memento mori, right? You will die regardless. It's going to happen. So to fear it, Yep. It's just silly. Well, you know, and, and it, this is a little off topic, but my most recent book is on spiritual combat. Oh, nice. And uh, and I tell you there, you know, that what happens after you die is really pretty important. And for those who know on combat, they know on killing. They, and what's Grossman got to say about the other side of the equation? Uh, there's a lot more going on there as well. And, and, and when you've got that part resolved, uh, there's also a great peace and strength that comes from that. And at the end, we're fighting forces of evil. If we don't have a force for good on our side, it can be pretty hard. Yeah. So you know, when we talk about tools for the toolbox and uh, talking about, you know, putting together some uh, dynamics, uh, you know, you mentioned, as we were talking before about, you know, had a group of veterans, you know, something having difficulty or have you been to the gym? You know, have you have you been to the range, you know? And those are tools in the toolbox. But I, I got a tool I want to give you. And before you can help the mind, the body has got to be as good as we can get it. Yep. And the first question is, have you had a good meal recently? And the next question ought to be, have you had a good night's sleep? Yeah. And and sleep is a baseline of almost everything else. Food and sleep are the biological needs. You know, well. Water is assumed, although staying properly hydrated, and air is assumed, although breathing exercise, you know. Yep. Air, food, water can almost be assumed, but sleep is a biological blind spot. Your body doesn't know how to make you get enough sleep. And so it, it, it always happened naturally. It got dark. There was nothing to do. You know, the firewood was rare and precious commodities. You know, you, you had a little talking, a little sex, you rolled and went to sleep. Mm-hmm. We invented the electric light bulb and the television and the video game, and suddenly we have to go 24-7, and our bodies don't know how to make us get enough sleep. So it's a biological blind spot. And here's the key thing I need you to understand. Uh, sleep deprivation is a key factor in suicides. Taking your life is not a natural act. Every living organism will fight for self-preservation, mm-hmm. will fight to the last breath. To, to choose to take your own life, is that you have to have profoundly impaired judgment. Alcohol and suicide have always been related. Alcohol creates impaired judgment, make a bad decision, never get a chance to rethink it. But the most pervasive form of impaired judgment is sleep deprivation. After 18 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.08 legally drunk. Yep. 24 hours without sleep, your impaired judgment equal to 0.10 above legally drunk. Two nights without sleep, and you're psychotic. Any graduate of Army Ranger School to have hallucinations on the third day without sleep. <laughs> and we're in the middle of a global epidemic of sleep deprivation. Just do an online search for that. Yeah. 
it, it's, it's, we've been blindsided. Social media, binge watching TV shows, playing video games. We've been blindsided. And then you add any kind of sleep complication on top of that. And, and we're coming unglued. Yeah. It is the dominant challenge of our age is to integrate that electronic media and to be able to get our sleep. And so it's a key factor in suicide. Some of the military research tells us a sleep-deprived soldier can be up to five times more likely to take their life. Wow. It, it, one, of the, one of the best meta-studies on suicide says there's a lot of factors in suicide. Without a doubt, sleep is a major factor, and it is the most remediable factor. It's the one we can do something about. Mm -hmm. Now, now we'll talk a little bit about sleep hygiene, some tools you put in the toolbox right away. But the, uh, the sleep is a critical factor in suicides. And, and in Parenting 101 for the 21st century, when you send your kid to bed at night, take their cell phone away from them. No cell phone in the room, no laptop in the room. They've got to go to the room and sleep. Yep. And, uh, and, and a cop came up to me during a break in one of my presentations. He said, I had a good girl. He said she was an A student. She said, Dad, it's embarrassing. You don't have to take my cell phone every night. You can trust me. He said, so I let her keep her cell phone. A little while later, she took her life. He said, my little girl took her life. And we never knew the hell she was living in until we looked at the text messages on her cell phone. Night after night of ceaseless, relentless, vicious bullying. Mm -hmm. And he can't just ignore that stuff. We're not wired the way. He said it was heartrending. You could see her up all night long, night after night, trying to defend herself, trying to find somebody to stand for her. He said, I understood my little girl was bullied to death. What I didn't understand until now, she was sleep deprived, tormented and bullied to death in front of my eyes, and I let it happen. He said, I can't ignore that text message in the middle of the night. How can we expect our kids to? Yeah. The one thing on earth I could do for my little girl was take her cell phone every night, let her turn off all the bad stuff in this world. So who's going to be your mommy? Who's going to make you get that sleep? Sleep deprivation is a key factor in suicides. It is the new factor worldwide causing an explosion in suicides. you got somebody you're worried about their mental health, Make sure they get a good hot meal and then a, a safe place to sleep for the night. Mm -hmm. Hey, sleep in our bedroom. You know, sleep in our guest bedroom and sleep in our house. I got your six. I got you covered. A, 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 a dark, quiet, good room to get a good night's sleep in where they know somebody's got their six. Maybe all the difference in the world. Yeah. But the second thing we're doing with sleep deprivation is traffic deaths. Decade after decade, we brought traffic deaths down. Airbags, seatbelts, medical technology. Now everywhere, traffic deaths are back up for the last decade. What is the new factor? Sleep deprivation. I, uh, I got teenage grandkids now. My little grandson uh, is now in his, uh, his second year of college. When he headed off to his freshman year of college, he's heard my class many times. My gift to him was two different kinds of sleep masks, the two highest rated sleep masks on Amazon. And I said, now, you know, you'll be working at night. You'll be studying. You'll be sleeping during the day. He said, can you promise me you sleep with that mask on? Yes, sir. And you promise me. You work on getting enough sleep. Yes, sir. That's my number one concern. So I had three teenage boys once upon a time, and the number one killer of kids at that time was traffic deaths. Mm -hmm. My number one concern. I made sure they all had, uh, you know, seatbelts and good training, and I made sure they had cars with airbags. Two out of three tested those airbags. Nobody ever told me the single most important thing was to make sure they had a good night's sleep before they get behind the wheel of a vehicle. Yep. 
I'd let them, I'd let them game with their friends all night long on Friday night. And, and now, you know, th- there they are on Saturday going out for dinner. Make sure you buckle up your car. Boom. Nobody ever told me that you are now legally drunk. Yeah. You are the mental e- equivalent of a, of, of a drunken human being having been awake for over 24 hours going out on a drive. Yeah. So the two major killers that have exploded is, uh, is suicide and traffic deaths. And this is the new factor. And the third major factor is opiate overdoses. Yeah. Now, why, why are opiates the drug of choice? Well, sleep deprivation creates chronic pain. The tendons and muscles ne- never get a chance to fully relax. Mm-hmm. Doc, I heard all the time, give me a pill to fix. You don't need more pills. You need more sleep. And you have got to knock off the caffeine shortly after lunch. Yeah. These mega doses of caffeine after lunch are making us get bad quality sleep. We're not getting the deep cycle sleep. The tendons and muscles never fully relax. People say, well, oh, I still sleep. Caffeine doesn't make me sleep. <laughs> Caffeine doesn't make you not sleep. Caffeine makes you makes you better able to stay awake. Yeah. And it makes you have bad quality sleep. Yeah. You're not getting that deep cycle sleep. And we now know during deep cycle sleep is when the body flushes all the garbage out of the brains. Those use up neurotransmitters. You never get deep cycle sleep. What happened to all that garbage? Well, study after study tells us sleep deprivation is a critical component in Alzheimer's and dementia. And a study just last year told us lack of deep cycle sleep may be the single greatest predictor of Alzheimer's. Let's just care the hell out of us. So sleep deprivation takes years off your life. It destroys your immune system. It destroys your cardiovascular system. You're stupid. You say things you regret for the rest of your life. It destroys your relationships. Sleep deprivation uh, is, uh, is, 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 making us vulnerable to suicide and traffic deaths and drug overdoses. And we've got to get that stuff under control. But, you know, we've been at war now for 20 years. We're still at war in Iraq. And for the first 15 years, the U.S. Armed Forces passed out energy drinks like water. Yep. They gave us by the Canadian forces did, too. We passed them out to the troops. Aren't we yep. nice guys? And then five years ago, two major Department of Defense-wide studies on those energy drinks. Today, for all practical purpose, there is a complete ban on issuing energy drinks. Yep. They're like alcohol. You want to buy your own, not going to stop you. We'll never give it to you. In an academic environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones with the worst grades. In a tactical environment, the one taking the most energy drinks were the ones most likely not off in the job. Mm-hmm. All there is in that thing is a mega dose of caffeine, sugar, and some stuff to make you metabolize it quickly. It will give you a one-hour burst of physical ability, and then you crash. Before a PT test, before an athletic event, one drink is not a bad idea, but you're going to crash in an hour. Yep. And all the drinks in the world ain't going to do no good after that. And and so it's about using this drug of caffeine intelligently. But the, 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 the energy drink industry is never going to say, hey, you know, really, that stuff's bad for your soul. Yeah, exactly. You shouldn't actually give that to them. Yeah. She's not going to tell you, don't play that game all night. Yeah. The head of Netflix has said that their number one competitor was not other online providers. Their number one competitor is sleep. Yeah. Netflix is not going to say, you shouldn't binge watch that show. You need to get some sleep tonight. They don't care that they're killing you. No. They just want to sell their product. Exactly. And so we're being eaten alive. And the number one tool to put in your toolbox every night, every day, is sleep. So let me give you some sleep one-on-one, just some series of tools. Absolutely. Is this a good place to fit those in? Yeah, absolutely. Right, Give her. Number one. Naps are a friend, but anything less than 20 minutes is a waste of time. Better yet, 30 minutes. 
Now, we've all been driving down the road with their head is bobbing. Take the little micro naps. Mm-hmm. That's your brain saying, stupid, 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 stupid. <laughs> you should not be driving in a state like this. You pull over, take a 10-minute nap. The alarm goes off, kind of a strong response. Yeah. As far as sleep deprivation goes, that 10-minute nap was a total waste of time. Take a 30-minute nap. The alarm goes off. You're bleary and you're groggy. You don't want to get up. You know why? Because you're asleep. At 30 minutes, fall deep cycle. I don't want to get back to sleep. So... That means the snooze alarm is not our friend. The snooze alarm is always set for about 10 minutes. Just yep. enough time to get that startle response. But the snooze alarm is an evil little button that makes you relive the worst part of every day over and over again. And, and, and I'm deadly serious. Everybody <laughs> yeah. else, never touch the snooze alarm again. You mm-hmm. had a 10-minute snooze, another snooze, a third snooze. You just threw away 30 minutes of your day. Those three snoozes, no as far as sleep goes, then no as far as your life goes. You threw away 30 minutes of the day to trick your body going without sleep. And furthermore, you're doing actual psychological, physical harm to your body with a snooze alarm. Just do some online research. It's like you're trying to force your body to fall into deep cycle sleep in 10 minutes and it can't do it. So, and, and, and in the end, it, it comes back to self-control, self-discipline. Yeah, absolutely. Am I in charge of my body or is my body in charge of me? It's the first act of every day to roll out of bed was the first act of every day to surrender to your body and hit the snooze line. You know, have you got what it takes to suck up slugs and drive on? Are you a slave to your body or is your body under your control? The first act of every day defines your relationship with your body. So set your cell phone, 6 o'clock, 6 o'clock, put 10 alarms. By the time you turn all those alarms off, you're up. And the you go to bed in the morning, got to get you wake up, get the hell out of bed. Yeah. Next tool, you've got to sleep in a dark room. Make the room as dark as you can. But if you're like me, you know, and uh, you got crazy hours sometimes, I, I get home, get on a red eye, and I try to sleep. And the, yeah, I got good curtains, but I combine it with a sleep mask. Yeah. And, and I've got really one of the best sleep masks I get out there. It's worth the investment, you know, and, and, and it, it covers the eyes. It kind of forms a little cushion around there and comes on around. Yeah. And that sleep mask is solid gold. And I take it on the road. I, I've, I've got one beside the bed. Sleep in the dark. Teach your children to sleep in the dark. Babies are sloshing with melatonin. Now, melatonin is a neurotransmitter our body creates to help us sleep. It's built in the dark. If you're never sleeping in the dark, your body doesn't produce melatonin. Mm -hmm. And so babies are sloshing with melatonin. They can sleep anywhere. By the time we become teenagers, it becomes very important to sleep in a dark room or combine it with a sleep mask. Yeah. So sleep in the dark. You can start tonight. I, I'm a huge science geek. My favorite website is sciencedaily.com. Check it every day through every category. And the research is there. In the sleep lab, totally dark room, bathroom light is on, and the door is shut. The light coming under the crack of the bathroom door is enough light to stop your body from producing the melatonin that you need. Yeah. But we are designed to sleep in the dark. Alcohol is not our friend. You know, no more than one drink on the way to bed. I've, uh, yeah, I've you know, sort of cut don't, don't use alcohol to put yourself to sleep. Nothing wrong with the nightcap. But if you're using alcohol to put yourself to sleep, and if I could, if I could, if I were king and could buy everybody a gift, I'd give you the latest Fitbit. Now, track and they track your steps and they track your calories and they track your heart rate, but they also track your sleep. Mm-hmm. And there was a really good a good study recently on which of the fitness trackers does the best job on tracking sleep. And the Fitbit really came out on top. Mm. And, and wear that fitness tracker and track your sleep. 
And, and you've got to understand, you've got to manage your sleep like you manage your money. And all you do is download the app and wear the fitness tracker, and it will tell you. You need at least seven hours of sleep as an adult. You've gotten less than four hours sleep for the last two months. You can't keep going this way. And it will track your sleep. Yeah. So do this. Pound down four beers, go to bed, and then wake up in the morning and see what the fitness tracker tells you. You will fall quickly into a shallow sleep. You won't go into a deep sleep. Mm -hmm. You will wake up in a couple hours, and you can't get back to sleep. Just track what that alcohol is doing to your body. It, you're, you're getting bad quality sleep. Absolutely. And then finally, caffeine. Uh, cut off caffeine shortly after lunch yeah. to get that good quality sleep. It is so important. And we've got people out there that have powerful addictions to caffeine. And we've got people so addicted that they go cold turkey and they have seizures. Yeah. I'm talking, they're pounded down two six-packs of, of Rock Bull Star Monster energy drink a day, and, and, and they go cold turkey, yeah. and they are having seizures. Uh, so taper off, taper off slowly, and get your sleep under control. It'll rock your world. Yeah, I had a, I had a ward of mine who uh, I would never see him without coffee, ever. Yeah. And first thing in the morning, he had dark black coffee, you know, right from the, uh, the Army coffee uh, percolator. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, he would, and it would always be full, and he would just be drinking all day, and it never did anything for him. He just he was so used to drinking yeah. it over and over what and I over. People is, you know, it looks like of all the forms of ca caffeine, coffee might be what's best for us. I think coffee's so good because the other guys are just so bad. Sodas and diet sodas, but coffee and tea is good for us. And a cup or two of coffee and tea at breakfast, cup or two of coffee and tea at lunch, and then switch the decaf and have all you want. Yeah. And I think we're really getting the best of all worlds when we get a, a reasonable amount of coffee. It seems to be some good stuff happening with coffee, or at least it's a, the most healthy form of caffeine. Yeah. This is the thing, though. Like, it's everything in moderation, right? It's good to have a glass of wine every once in a while, right? It's antioxidants, and it helps your body. It's good to have beer every once in a while. It's good to have coffee every once in a while. But yes. when you start to rely on it, this is the same thing when we uh, when we train in the military. The first thing we train into is sleep deprivation because we know how much it's going to affect you. And when you get into combat and you're in high-stress environments where your body is just, like, flinging hormones around left, right, and center, you need to be able to realize and train in a way that you can actually work in those. And, and let me give you an angle on that. You know, a lot of people say, well, I was sleep deprived in the military and, and I'm inoculated against sleep deprivation. <laughs> right? now, you can't really do that. No. Your body's, now, there, but there are two things going on here. There's the psychological stress mm -hmm. and you cannot inoculate against that. But you can't teach your body to get by unless sleep. Now, Ranger School, I'm a scrawny little sucker. And I lost 20 pounds in Ranger School. Ranger School didn't teach me I don't need food. Mm -hmm. Ranger School taught me I always have food in my pocket somewhere. And Ranger School taught me how desperate and how distracted I became if I didn't have food. Yep. And Ranger School didn't teach me I don't need sleep. It taught me what a useless zombie I am without sleep. Yep. Teaches and you I, where to find sleep, right? And you sleep in those little 15 or 10-minute breaks when you're trying to write your orders or something. And you're like, oh. That's better than nothing, but you want to have at least 30 Absolutely. minutes. And don't let naps interrupt a good night's sleep. It really, we're, more and more we're learning there's just things happening in a good full night's sleep that naps will never capture. Yeah, uh, Some of the REM sleep, some of the other dynamics, but they're better than nothing. They're yeah. a lot better than nothing. And and um, so just this whole sleep dynamic is, is so important. And, and you know, like uh, Ranger School, all right, I went days without food. I, I really think the best weight loss tool is fasting. And on most weeks when I'm home and I'm on the road and I adapt it, 
but I, I, yesterday was a fast day. And Sunday night, I stopped, you know, I stopped eating. And then all, all Sunday night and all day Monday and all Monday night. And then this is Tuesday morning. And I broke my fast with a muffin and a cup of tea. Mm-hmm. But that was about 36 hours. Now, I'll do the same thing when I'm at home. I won't do it this weekend, but when I'm at home, I do the same thing on Friday. Uh, Mondays and Fridays are usually my fast days. And, and people can't go 24 hours without food? <laughs> Come on, get a grip on yourself. Get control. Yep. And, and what this is really is a 36-hour fast, you yep. know, from, from dinner on, on Saturday to breakfast on, on Tuesday. Yeah. And, and we really get a little more than 24 hours, a good chunk more than 24 hours in there. And for weight loss, and the data keeps telling us that fasting for longevity purposes is really pretty good for us in a lot of different ways. Our bodies are made for feast or famine. Yep. Our bodies are designed for that. By the way, talking about longevity, uh, when we talk about sleep, the one thing I think everybody should be taking is a little baby dose of melatonin. Mm. Uh, M-E-L-A-T-O-N-I-N. You buy it at any store. They're dirt yep. cheap. And we got great research. We got research with yeast and worms and mice and that uh, that that this thing melatonin will increase your lifespan by about ten percent. My wife says, "Great, all the worms in your body will live ten percent longer." <laughs> uh, we can't do that kind of research on humans, but I think the data is first off it helps your sleep. As we get older, the body produces less melatonin. But there are a lot of people out there think that melatonin is one of the fountains of youth. It can't do any harm. A little baby dose, and it could do some good. And yeah. there certainly is potential there to help your sleep. Um, yeah, you know, it's a. This is this is how we train, though, right? This is what you need. You get the knowledge, right? Hey, you should probably have some cardio just for as cardio is good for longevity, right? Sleep is good for longevity. Any type of um, mental stimulation is good for longevity. And what it comes yes. comes down to, again, you know, I, I liken this to a lot of uh, equine stuff because this is where I first all I learned it, right? And as as a horse inside a herd, you were mentioning earlier about uh, sleeping in a dark room and making sure that you you feel safe, right? Horses don't all sleep at once. You have most of the herd sleeping at night, and you'll have one up wandering around on sentry. You'll have uh, right just like we do. But in the day, they that one sentry or the two sentry horses will take naps through the day, and they will go lay down in the shade in a darker area. And this is a perfectly instinctual thing that they all do um and we can learn so much from horses especially as veterans because we are prey animals when we're overseas especially in afghanistan vietnam that kind of like when people are hunting you you have a level of anxiety and a level of um constant threat that you live like a horse does and horses are prey animals they are still constantly preyed upon in the wild by wild animals and people and all kinds of things but the uh, the thing that I learned the most about it is that they're not afraid. They're not. Um, they don't wander around in a constant state of fear. They all they all realize that that guy's got my back. He's watching for animals. We're going to sit down and eat. Eating, sleeping, drinking, all these things are instinctual in the body to relax. You you wrote about it. You know this. And the uh, but the sleeping portion of it, we train out of ourselves. For years, yep. right? Especially in the military, you train to not sleep forever, or you sleep little bits here and there, and blah blah blah. But the best sleeps of my life were in in the field on X, where they're like, you have four hours from two to five, and you're like, oh yeah, or three hours sleep, and that's like the best sleep you're gonna get. Or when I'm out hunting, and it's 
I'm out in the mountains, and there's nothing. No light, no nothing, just pitch darkness. And it is so fantastic. And it's because you're sitting in REM. You are letting your body uh, heal. And then the other part of it is is that in terms of trauma and trauma recovery, you need REM sleep in order to process. That's why EMDR works so well, right? It's because you're moving your eyes. And that's what you do all night during REM as you process stuff. So like I'm in total agreement with you that sleep is so, so important. And it's just well, like a on the topic about equine ther- therapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's in my book on, on combat, and I've developed it a lot since then. That um, it, in essence, when we get in a life and death event, you go on this roller coaster of sympathetic nervous system and then parasympathetic backlash. And the sympathetic is fight or flight. Mm-hmm. Parasympathetic is they call it the four Fs, right? The four Fs: fight or flight, feed and breathe. The four Fs, right? So after a uh, a life and death event, a lot of people gorge themselves. And a lot of people have very intense sex. Mm-hmm. That's the, the fourth F, you know, fight or flight, feed and breed. Mm-hmm. And crime victims, EMS, fire, cops, they talk about going home and having some incredibly intense sex. And this book on hunting, we got a whole section on where hunters uh, get back to hunting camp, husband and wife teams, and, and we've got a variety of people said, yeah, you know, we, we have some pretty intense sex, and mm-hmm. it's biological. You know, the hunter comes home, you've got meat, you've got resources, you know, you, you reap your reward. It, it, it's, but it's biological. I just did something with uh, uh, all of the U.S. Army's uh, 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 sexual assault uh, uh, investigators and therapists, mm-hmm. and I said, when somebody's been assaulted like that, there can be a... a, a biological backlash, a grasping for for life in the face of death, a biological, and, and you might interpret it as promiscuity, when in reality it is a natural response. Now, you know, biology is not destiny, and this is no excuse for inappropriate behavior. But this knowledge that we go on this roller coaster ride, and that this is one of the things that could happen, and it scares the daylights out of crime victims sometimes, and it's natural, it's normal. Mm-hmm. But then... But when we talk about that roller coaster ride, sympathetic nervous system arousal, in a nutshell, uh, PTSD, every time you talk about it, every time you think about it, go on that roller coaster ride again. Now, by itself, that is not PTSD. It's normal. It should go away in, a, in time. It becomes PTSD when you try to not think about it. Yep. You will literally drive yourself crazy trying to not think about it. So what you got to do is you got to make peace with the memory got to separate the memory from the emotions. And the tool I always use was the breathing exercise in my book, and it's, it's terribly valuable and real powerful. But we've got something new that we're using, like in the last decade, and it's a swig of water. And the, and the swig of water, you know, how many, take a knee and take a swig from your canteen. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what that swig of water does, it sends, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a feed and breed response. And, and taking that swig of water says, I'm safe. Yep. You know, a deer's being chased by a wolf. You stop and get a drink. He's really thirsty. I can't get a drink. I'm being chased by a wolf. <laughs> so the fact you take a drink, it's a natural way to get people to to, to breathe and to breathe right. Mm-hmm. And and it sends a biological message that says, hey, we're safe. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's so a friend of mine is one of our nation's leading therapists for federal agents. And uh, and she's, she debriefs them and puts a bottle of water in front of them. And every time they start to become emotional, she makes them stop and take a swig of water. Yep. And she told me, she said, uh, six years of college, 
14 years of practice, and that stupid bottle of water is doing more good and they're never done. <laughs> so this is really kind of a self-help dynamic that people can put. You know, you got somebody that's upset. You know, I just had something happen at a range a little while back, and the, the guy in charge of the range, I was just, I was enraged. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and a buddy of mine grabbed a bottle of water and said, here, Dave, have a bottle of water. I said, thank you. I need that. You know? <laughs> and I was able to regain control, but he knew. You know, have a swig of brandy. Have a glass of water. Yep. It's not the brandy. It's not the water. It's the act of swallowing and getting that in your system. It's calming. Yep. We're taking it a step further now. Uh, I, I trained a major spec ops unit, and the master sergeant that was my host, his wife was an emergency room psychiatrist, an ER psychiatrist. And he told she told him about something sweeping through the ER around the world. You got a meth head or a crack head tearing up your ER. They grab a bag of M&Ms, rip it over, shove his face. Would you like some M&Ms? And in most cases, completely diffuse the situation. Yeah. Now he said, look, I'm your typical GI. I'm, I'm cynical. I blew it off. Yeah, sure. Touchy feeling. Yeah, sure. Fine. This kind of guy, carry gun off duty kind of guy you want to. He said two different times, I thought I was going to have to draw my gun and fight for our lives, me and my wife off duty. And both times... She reaches in her purse, grabs a bag of M&M's, rips it over, shoves the guy's face, which likes some M&M's, and completely diffuse the situation. That is outstanding. So, we're going to have plan B back here. Yep. <laughs> it's one thing when a pretty girl does it. Always be ready. Yeah. A crude yep. calling people down. I take it one step further now, and this is out there. A cop came up to me during a break in a class, and he brought his partner with him to vouch for the story. Such a wild story. He brought his partner to vouch for the story. Naked guy in the front yard, screaming inarticulately, throwing things. Parents on the porch, don't shoot our kid, don't shoot our kid. And two cops saying, like, what are we supposed to do? Now, naked guys usually mean something's wrong. And very often, you're looking at excited delirium. Their body goes into overdrive. They are actually chemically creating energy in a way that most people will never be able to do. Mm -hmm. They are not rational. They're capable of great feats of strength, and they're hot. They're running a fever. The reason why they're naked is they're hot. Yeah. And, 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 and they're running a fever. I tell my cops, if you have a naked guy die on you, have the docs take a temp. And if that guy's running a temperature, something happened and you didn't do it. Yeah. Was this excited delirium? We don't know. But one of the cops said, I happen to have a Snickers bar in my hand. I thought, what the hell? Hey, buddy, you want a Snickers bar? Huh? You want a Snickers bar? Huh? Well, would you like a Snickers bar? Yeah. Follow me up room, I'll give it to you. Then on room, gave a Snickers bar, walked away. Was it excited to learn would it work again? We don't know. Mm-hmm. It's one of those, what do you got to lose? So put it in your toolbox under the what do you got to lose category yep. and, and, and give it a try. You know, we, 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 these fundamental things we're learning. Yeah. And I actually didn't even realize this that triggered a memory in my head as we were talking about it was um, when I was young, I worked in a in a safe way, like a deli. And um, I used to get a bag of candy every day when I would show up. And I'd take this bag of candy and I'd put it in a little bowl and I'd put it up on top of the deli counter. And I did it because not many people are very happy to be in the grocery store, right? They don't want to be there. They're in a grumpy mood. They give me 200 grams of blah, 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 right? But it, it diffused so many situations. They would walk up to the counter. They'd ask me for something. I'd be like, hey, you want some candy? And they would 
Like it would just snap their brain out of it. There'd be a big smile on their face and be like, oh, you know, okay, no, some people would take it, some wouldn't, but it would be just enough to kind of switch their brain out of that negative cycle, right? Yes. And those. It's so powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look at my my cops. You're getting a witness statement from a victim of a crime. Now, if this person becomes emotional, A, you don't need all that drama. B, they're moving down the path of mental illness. They're starting to associate the memory with the emotions. Mm-hmm. So put a bottle of water in front of them. Just the power of a gift. Crack the seal in front of their eyes. Put a bottle of water in front of them. And every time they start to become emotional, first off, you're on the right footing by just giving them a gift. And every time they start to become emotional, have them take a swig of water. Mm-hmm. A, you're getting the calm, rational state that they need. B, you send them down the path of mental wellness. Yeah. You know, and, and the debriefing, you know, we, we do an AAR after an event. But today, the debrief, the AAR, everybody has a canteen of water or a bottle of water in front of them. And everybody talks about what happened. If anybody starts to become emotional, boom, swig water, gain control. Which brings me back to talking over a beer. Yep. You talked earlier about you and some friends talking over a beer. You know, whiskey's made for sipping. Wine's made for sipping. Beer is made for gulping. And talking over <laughs> beer... It's just not one of the best things you could do. Yep. And, and you you know, you start talking and you begin to lose it. What do you do? They swear your beer, maybe a belch, regain control and keep talking. Mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, uh, when you get drunk, it becomes a little counterproductive. But other than that, it's just about one of the healthiest things you could possibly do. And this is the first war we've ever fought without alcohol for the Americans. Yeah. And, and you know, it's sitting around the campfire with the beer, sitting around the campfire with some form of alcohol is something we've always had. And I think it's, you know, not, not competent pity party, but just, just thinking historically to kind of examine, if, did we miss something there? Is there something there that if used effectively could have made a difference mm-hmm. and helping some of our people? And, and you know, there's this, there's this myth that they all have PTSD. And the truth is about 5% of our troops contract PTSD. The data is there on showing people. The British studied their troops in Afghanistan, 5%. Mm-hmm. I always got some Brit that says, well, our, our troops run about 5% PTSD. Why are the Americans so much higher? They're not. So this myth, that, and we're darn good at treating PTSD. For you, it was equine therapy. Mm-hmm. Dog therapy, there's other things we can do. EMDR, eye movement, desensitization, reprogramming. You know, the, what's happening is, when this fight or flight mechanism kicks in, the midbrain is hijacking. I call it the puppy inside, the little dog inside. Yep. Blows a hole through the screen door, grabs you by the throat, and pees in your lap. But EMDR, the, the puppy, the, the midbrain is a very simple mechanism, only one thing at a time. So while you're following that visual stimulus, the midbrain's busy, and you can talk about it and think about it without re experiencing it. Yeah. And it's got to be done right by a, by a professional who's properly trained. But EMDR, equine therapy, dog therapy, there's so many good things that we can do. But I tell people that uh, we can we can fix PTSD. Oh, we yeah. really can. The greatest myth out there is that PTSD is for life. No, it's not. Medical science moves on. The indomitable human spirit. Uh, we're good at, 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 and we get better every day. Yeah. If there's somebody out there that thinks they're trapped in a lifetime of PTSD, just medical science moves on. And don't be satisfied until you get your life back. And and you will come out the other end as a stronger human being. Absolutely. You know, post-traumatic growth. Yeah. That's the end state. Post-traumatic stress, like, like, like pumping iron. 
you create stress on the muscles, you break down some of those muscle tendons, but you become stronger after you recover from it. And post-traumatic growth is, it should be our goal. And that's, that veteran, that's what our veterans have, is that post-traumatic growth. You know, I, I just uh, released my, my last episode, we were talking about stigma and how it's developed and where it comes from and like um, the actual, how to deal with it. But it, what it really comes down to is understanding that pain is information at the end of the day, right? And if it's uh, psychological pain versus physical pain, doesn't matter, you still need to be able to look at it and say, why am I experiencing this pain? And then be willing to put the work in to actually change that. And then, you know, PTSD especially, it is all about growth, but if you're not so willing to put the work in, right, you're not going anywhere, right? You can throw pills down your range, you can drink all you want, you're not gonna change anything until you're actually willing to put the work in and say, you know what, it's on me, right? <laughs> I'm the one that has to change. Okay. And then go. And it's the same thing we do in military training, right? When you show up for basic, you are so-and-so person, right? I was Chance Burrells. You were Dave Grossman. You just showed up. After you're done training, you are Private Grossman. I was Sapper Burrells. I, like, we become something else through stress, through training, through the, yes. the desire to be better. Because at the end of the day, we could have all quit. Right. Yeah. You, there's, it's real easy in the military. If you're in training and you say, I don't want to do this anymore. Out the fucking door. Bye-bye. It's over. Right. So you know, Nietzsche said, what doesn't kill us only makes us stronger. But Nietzsche stole that from the Bible. Yeah. 2000 years before that, Romans chapter five, you know, we glory in tribulation, but tribulation work of patience, patience, mm -hmm. experience, experience, hope and hope maketh not a shame. 2000 years before Nietzsche, the Bible saying the same thing. Well, this is what the I said. The idea of getting stronger from the bad things is not a new idea. Yeah, the pity party, you know, cop in a pity party. That's the new idea. And we want to try to get that under control. You know, like no pity party, no macho man. You yeah. know? Don't think there's going to be a problem. But if there is a problem, deal with it in a faith to help can help. Yeah. Find that middle road between the pity party and the macho man and, and getting that help and, 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 and being stronger. Yeah. And, you know, faith can come in in many different realms, too. Like I know people who are devoutly religious and that is their their rock that they can uh, yeah. step to, right? And I know people that are devout into martial arts, and that is their rock. Yes. I know people that are devout into family life, and that is their rock, right? They, they, you create what it is that you want to follow and what you want to believe in, and then you can actually look for emulations, right? People look at the Bible, they look at the the hero, the hero story, they look at, uh, they look at. Um, fantasy novels and they again the hero archetype right and so they people look at what they want when people say like when i joined the military i i got asked very early as a uh, by my instructors and they said what do you think you're gonna what do you think you want to be when you uh, get through training and i was like i'm going to be a combat engineer master corporal it wasn't a question this was a statement uh, right <laughs> I'm, it's not a question of if it is a question of when I'm going to get through training and I'm going to be that person. And once I become that person, then I'm going to be somebody else. And then I'm going to be somebody else. And I'm just going to build and build and build. And I think that's what, you know, when we talk about the illusion of safety, when we talk about your own mortality, it's all about fighting to protect that, yes. that person that you want to become, right? And it's always just out of reach. You never want to like attain that thing. You just want to push the boundaries just a little bit for a little bit farther. You fight for it. You get that when you're climbing a mountain, right? There's a lot yes. of times I heard um, my doctor came up with this. Uh, she told me that there's a thing called uh, summit depression, 
where oh. you get all the way to the top of a mountain and you look around and you're amazed and then actually coming down the mountain is the most dangerous time because you're not adulated from the climb. You Now you're like, oh, fuck, and you got to work your way down and you're tired. And uh, it's the same thing after a firefight where people get tired, right? All your, uh, <laughs> your hormones just bang. Cool. And uh, it's, it's such an important thing to understand that if you are continually striving, if you're every step you take, go a little bit further every step and uh there's a great motivational video that i really really enjoy and in it it's talking about uh you know being the type of person that wants to walk upstream you're you're not the type of person that's going to go with the flow you're going to turn and you're going to walk upstream and one of the lines in it says the easy way is always going to be there all you got to do is pick up your feet and i was like like it was just so perfect because that's really all you have to do is stop trying and you will get washed down the Have the closure. Yep. And let's come back to our Afghanistan deaths. Absolutely. You know, like I said, one of the things they truly did was keeping the hell off our back for 20 years. Mm-hmm. Shut down the camp, shut down the nation, kept it over there for 20 years. And, and that's an amazing achievement. You know, when uh, in the 1960s, we had been in Europe for 20 years. If we'd have pulled out, Russia would have owned West Germany in a couple of weeks. In the 1970s, we'd been in Korea for 20 years. If we'd have pulled out then, the North Koreans would have owned them in a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. And they tried to do it. Jimmy Carter was president, and he was going to pull our troops out of Korea. And General Sigwald, the last American general to resign in protest. Think about that. The last one that's ever resigned in protest, General Sigwald that I will not accept this order. I resign in protest. And, and Jimmy Carter backed off and just took one brigade out. Mm-hmm. But if we'd have abandoned them, it, the, the North Koreans would have, and the Chinese would have owned them. So we, after 20 years, we, we left Afghanistan. Maybe it was maybe they were irredeemable, maybe not. But, uh, but a lot was accomplished during that time. And first and foremost is this incredible band of brothers. Mm-hmm. This incredible band of men and women who have been forged in the flames, uh, the, the new greatest generation, the veteran renaissance that you talked about is an amazing thing. And they kept them off our back for 20 years. There hasn't been another 9-11, and that's a victory. But everybody says the odds of an attack have gone way up now. And we need to take all of our skills. We need to belly up to the bar. I believe that if we're truly a responsible citizen, we should be trained and we should be carrying. Yep. And we should be prepared for our moment of truth. Uh, that's the great thing about our nation is that it's really model where we empower every citizen. We give them the tools. They they, they walk around town with an M16 slung over their back. You know, They're not big on concealed carry, although they're getting bigger. They're doing more and more of it. But the idea of armed people everywhere, that's the Israeli model. And it's really the only possible answer. Yeah. And so we, we bought 20 years, kept them off our back, but the, the, the threat's not gone. As we love our way of life, uh, as we want to, to continue to be part of that veteran renaissance, let's use the skills that we've been given, let's stay current, let's be ready, uh, and whatever happens, your conscience is clear. Yeah. And at the, at- uh, here's to all the magnificent men and women who've answered the challenge for the last 20 years. Uh, God bless them all. They, they make us proud. They are an incredible group of people, really. And I mean, 
I, I look at my service there and I, for years I had discounted what I had done. And I always said, you know, all, all I did was walk around looking for bombs, right? Like it wasn't that big of a deal, but everybody I talked to goes, are you freaking crazy? <laughs> are you, freaking, you literally walked around a minefield country looking for bombs. Uh, but it, it's natural for the, you know, the, uh, the sheepdog, the, the persona of the person that wants to sacrifice and protect to downplay their own involvement. But the other, uh, and I, I still struggle with this, <laughs> the whole uh, uh, the imposter syndrome, I had a podcast on it with another great guy, um, but it is something that we were able to accomplish. And at the end of the day, after 20 years, everything we did was worth it, right? I saw little girls go to school. Yes. I got to see yeah. kids grow up in an environment that was not full of violence. Seeds were planted. Exactly. And it can be a different world. It can be a different way. You know what? The Russians left after 10 years and they followed them home straight to Chechi and started giving them hell. Yep. But the Russians were brutal. The Russians were despised. The Americans were generally appreciated. Mm -hmm. They were terrified. The Americans are gone. And, and you get rid of the Taliban 600 times a year, they were wiping out schools. Their own kids in their own schools on their own nation, 600 times a year, 2009. Yeah. What are they going to do to us? You know, they, they want payback. But we left a good message. I'll tell you something else I, I never mentioned before. I, I was in the British Staff College. Mm -hmm. Instead of going to Leavenworth as a young major, I got to go to England. That was a good deal. That's a good deal. And, and we had we had majors from almost every, from, from 42 planets, from, from 52 nations. I remember 52, the same as the Decker cards, 52 mm -hmm. nations. And all the Arab nations were there. And we'd sit down with a BS session someday and say, well, why has there never been an Arab democracy? And, and they said, Arabs won't vote. It's part of our culture. There's never been an Arab democracy. There'll never be an Arab democracy. You got to respect our culture. Mm -hmm. So in Iraq, when they held up those purple fingers, and an Arab nation went to vote across across the Arab world, there was this revolution. Mm -hmm. There can be an Arab democracy. Arabs will vote. Will that seed flourish? Will it Will it grow? Well, we don't know. But what an amazing achievement when around the world, you can't say Arabs won't vote. You can't say that. Because all those Iraqis who risked their lives and dipped their finger in that purple paint, so that, that they, they were a target when they did Absolutely. that. Absolutely. They were the line to do that. And yet they went and put their life on the line, millions of Iraqis to vote. And, and around that, that Arab world and around that Muslim world, another, another, another piece of totalitarianism crumbled when they said, well, Arabs will vote. Yeah. It can be an Arab democracy. And that's quite an achievement as well. And a similar thing was happening in Iraq when they, they knew what it feels like to vote. They know what it feels like to elect your own leaders. Mm -hmm. Let's see how it works out for the Taliban now. But the, the risk is up greatly. And we... Uh, we need to take those same skills that we used over there and apply it here. Absolutely. And uh, and you're doing it with your podcast and magnificent people are listening to it, are doing it. They're pushing the envelope. They're striving to be better. And uh, and I honor you and I thank you. And a chance has been a great, great honor to be on your podcast. It, Thanks for what you do. The honor is mine. Seriously, I, uh, I've been a big fan of yours for many years and I'm just unbelievably uh, excited to have you on here. And, I, again, I wanted to thank you not only for myself, but for all of the Canadian military that actually learned from you through your books, through the videos, through the uh, 
the symposiums that we'd put on every once in a while when you guys when you would come up here i think it saved a lot of people with just having again having those tools in the toolbox having those uh that little bit of information from going downhill very quickly afterwards and uh so mentioning here you mentioned the imposter syndrome mm -hmm. and all of us feel that unless you're unless you're some kind of an unrepentant sociopath you know, i think i think every healthy person feels the imposter syndrome yeah and uh and, and, and it's hard to wrap your mind around what you said that any of us was able to actually do those things we all of us feel like imposters all of us have trouble realizing well i'm a combat vet you know i'm, I'm just you know all i did was was defuse bombs you know and all I did was this, but, but just recognize the fact that you're worthy of honor. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, impost the imposter syndrome just means that you're a healthy human being. You're not an unrepentant sociopath. Yes. And, uh, and, uh, and have faith in yourself and have faith in our future, as long as we got sheepdogs like, uh, like you, magnificent men and women who listen to this message. Well, Thanks, James. Thank you, man. Again, um, if anybody wanted to follow you that doesn't already follow you on social media, do you have any... Uh... Uh, links, you things know, like that. I've got a pretty good batch on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. I, I've got a Facebook page, and I post things on it. I've got about 40,000 on Facebook. But I've got about 27,000 reasonably well-vetted people and, uh, uh, on, uh, on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And I, I really do put little updates on there periodically, uh, you know, how the books are doing or what's going on or sales available. Or I, will, I will mention this podcast on there when the time comes. And so uh, LinkedIn is really the mechanism I Perfect. use. Just come up on LinkedIn and ask to, to link with me, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. Wicked. And like I said, anybody if anybody other than a, an obvious Antifa thug, you know, I've got a few people <laughs> I've been able to thin out. Now, this guy's a spy, or at least I don't want anything to do with them. You're on your way. But, yeah. uh, but they've been pretty well vetted. And, and certainly uh, I get a good flow coming through LinkedIn upon occasion, and I get a chance to to listen to some folks there as well. Wicked. Uh, All right, I'll put some links in there, and I'll make sure um... – to have your so you have on killing on combat you have on spiritual combat and you're yeah. coming out with on hunting hunting yeah man yeah. outstanding that is so, fantastic uh, got all the good ones too we got the sheepdog kids book oh. which is really rocking people it's deep and then we got the why mommy carries a gun just a lot of fun. that's a good one Look up why mommy carries a gun. Mm -hmm. And, you know, surely the New York Times should attack that book. I mean, we, we, it was an intentionally provocative. You know, they, they didn't say anything about it. You, know, Come on, you should attack that book in the New York Times on the front page. Yeah. Well, we've also got, uh, here, here's, here's, here's why mommy carries a gun. We had a lot of fun with nice. that. But anybody in the family, mom or dad, grandma or grandpa can yep. carry a gun. Here's what you need to know. And, you know, the whole gun control thing. I co-authored a book with Glenn Beck on gun control. Oh. I had it there, you know. Glenn Beck and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman. I think I wrote more of the book than he did. It gets his name on the book. Great guy, really great guy. But I believe it may be the best thing ever done on gun control. And I wrote a big chunk of it. It's a really great resource. Awesome. And one of the books that I recommend very highly is my book, Assassination Generation, to understand about the crime rate dynamic, how it's being held down, and, and what these things are doing to our kids. Mm -hmm. So just take a look at, uh, you know, the, my uh, kind of the, the Grossman page on. Uh, on uh, Amazon.com, that I that I can't get the doggone kids books on there. Why mommy carries a gun? I'm trying to. I've been trying for months to crack the code hmm. to uh, to get on it. Uh, uh, get my author page under control. It's a different topic, but, uh, <laughs> but anyway, you got to look a little deeper than just my author page for the sheepdogs book and for why mommy carries a gun. But it, it, we're making a big difference with those. 
Absolutely. And, uh, they're all on Amazon. And, Perfect. And it's working out pretty good. I'll put the, all those into the show notes, and uh, we'll be we'll be good to go from there. But, again, I just thank wanted you. to really thank you for being on. This has been absolutely fantastic. I think there's going to be a ton of knowledge to pull from uh, this conversation. And uh, I, I just I can't thank you enough, brother. It's been a fantastic chat. Boy, iron sharpens iron, brother. It truly does. God bless. Be safe. That concludes this episode of The Toolbox. I really appreciate y'all listening. It has been my pleasure bringing you this awesome guest. If you like what you heard, please like, share, subscribe, and do all that awesome stuff. And I hope you can use some of the information that was offered. To all those putting on the line every day, first responders, military, veterans, civil servants, you guys are keeping us safe and keeping the country running. I really appreciate y'all. Hope to see you next time. Till then, stay open, stay humble, and stay focused. Shalom.